Hello, and welcome to the latest podcast for The Lancet Neurology. I'm Gavin Cleaver. Today we'll be discussing a recent article on genetic variants in the progression of Huntington's disease, and I'm delighted to be joined on the line today by Leslie Jones and Sarah Tabrizi. Please will you both introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Sarah Tabrizi. I'm a professor of neurology at the UCL Institute of Neurology, and I also direct the UCL Huntington's Disease Centre. And I'm Leslie Jones. I'm a professor of neurogenetics at Cardiff University, and I've been um, working on Huntington's disease since the mid-90s when the gene with the expanded CAG repeat in it was first claimed. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. So in your study, you investigated genetic variants associated with the progression of Huntington's disease. Now, could you briefly tell us what was already known about the progression of Huntington's disease and why you decided to look for genetic modifiers? So Huntington's disease is a dominantly inherited disorder. And for a long time, the gene was cloned in 1993, as Leslie mentioned, and it's a CAG repeat expansion in the first exon of the Huntington gene. And the the length of that CAG repeat expansion is related to age of onset. So we know that uh, there is a relationship between the length of your CAG and when you may develop the disease. But the length of your CAG repeat only accounts for about 50 to 70% of the variance in age of onset. So clearly other genetic modifiers of age of onset were important, and Leslie will talk a little bit more about that. But what we also know about the disease, and we know a great deal about progression of the disease clinically, and so for about the last 10 years, we've been studying patients with Huntington's disease, both pre-symptomatic Huntington's disease gene carriers and those with early disease, to map in detail their progression over a period of time. And it was very clear that people with the same CAG repeat expansion would have very different and varying levels of progression and rates of progression. And so this led us to think about, could we look for the underlying, maybe possibly genetic modifiers of rates of progression? So it was a really new way of thinking about looking at Huntington's disease. So I was very interested in the rate of progression of disease because I'd previously been involved in a genetic modifier study using age at onset of disease as a clinical phenotype, if you like, with which to do association studies with the genetic variants throughout the genome. And uh, one of the rather dissatisfactory things about those sorts of studies is that we know, as Sarah's kind of alluded to, that the measurement of age at onset, and in our case we tended to use age at motor onset, um, isn't very accurate and um, there's quite a lot of subjectivity around that when that point is said to happen. So I was interested in finding measures that would perhaps be a better reflection of, if you like, the burden of pathology in individuals with Huntington's disease, because one of the ways of improving the power of a genetic study is to have a rather more accurately measured phenotype, and this has been known from a lot of studies over the years. And Sarah, using um, the study that Sarah had done in her relatively small number of patients, but with really exquisitely um, measured phenotypes, 
allowed us to develop a measure of progression that was actually much better, I think, than anything had gone previously. And I think that Sarah is going to describe precisely how she went about doing that. Yes, so Sarah, then the, oh, the obvious question, how did you measure progression? So what we, we took the track HD cohort and we had studied um, 220 Huntington's disease subjects, both pre-symptomatic gene carriers and early stage patients over a period of 36 months. And we had essentially deep phenotyped this cohort. And we had done a large amount of brain imaging. We had uh, uh, measured cognitive tests, electrophysiological tests, neurophysiological tests, uh, quantitative motor testing. And so we took all of these measures and put them together to come up with a unified statistic which we called the progression statistic. And we used a principal component analysis to generate a progression score on the basis of the principal component analysis based on the acquired longitudinal changes in both our motor, cognitive, and imaging measures. And so we generated this progression statistic, which was essentially a number that drilled down as a single measure of the burden of progression of an individual over a period of time. And we use that to be able to link to a genetic analysis to tell us something about genetic modifiers of that progression. So we really, we really generated, we used high quality deep phenotypic data and to generate a novel progression score for genetic analysis. And actually, this was the first Mendelian inherited neurodegenerative disease where a progression statistic has been generated to be used for genetic analysis. And it, and it really shows you that the power of a very sensitive progression statistic allows you to study relatively small numbers of patients. And, and Leslie will come on and talk about that. And what we also found was that the different symptoms of disease, but also the cognitive symptoms, the motor symptoms, and the brain imaging changes all changed in parallel. And so that was why we were able to also um, generate this unique progression statistic, which I think will have relevance for, for other neurodegenerative diseases. Hmm. No, absolutely. Leslie, do you want to say anything about that? Really, I'd only like to reiterate the point that Sarah's made, that um, you know, we did find that we had a very highly correlated um, progression in a number of different types of measurements, so cognitive measurements, motor measurements, and imaging measurements. And that kind of gave us um, quite a lot of, I guess, faith in the fact that we were really measuring something that was likely to be important in disease. And so moving on from that then, what did you find in the genome-wide association study? What we actually found in the study of the track subjects, and remember that there were actually only um, just over 200 subjects in that particular study that we could use, was a signal on chromosome 5 that showed very strong genetic association. It was almost, but not quite, uh, what we term genome-wide significance statistically. And actually, I was very surprised by that because I thought in such a small study we might get a hint, but I didn't think we'd get anything that was um, quite so clear. 
So in that area of chromosome 5 are several genes, but the two that were really indicated by our signal were MSH3, which is a gene that encodes a mismatch repair protein, and DHFR, which is encodes an enzyme dihydrofolate reductase. And this was very interesting to us because they have previously been implicated in other studies as potential modifiers of Huntington's disease, although never in people. And we didn't have any other signals that were anything like as significant as this. And of course, one of the things that one needs to do when one does a genetic study of this type is to try and replicate it in an independent sample. And we were fortunate in that there was an independent sample, although I have to say it, its clinical data wasn't nearly so good as the track data. But um, the independent sample we used was a sample um, called the registry sample, which um, comes from the um, European Huntington's Disease Network collection. And here we had more people who had previously already been genotyped in an age of onset study that we had done. Um, so we had the genotypes, but we didn't have nearly such good phenotype data. But nevertheless, we did a comparison between the track generated progression statistic and the best statistic we could produce for this registry clinical data. And we saw a reasonably close correlation. So we used it in our analysis. And indeed, we saw a signal in the same region as of chromosome 5. And when we put the two together in a meta-analysis, this actually became genome-wide significant. So then we had a signal in precisely that region on chromosome 5. And actually, the top variant in that region is actually a coding variant in MSH3, which makes MSH3 the more likely candidate gene. And actually, the um, biology also makes MSH3 the more likely candidate gene. So perhaps you could both break it down first then. then. What does this tell us about the underlying mechanisms? So this is this was a very interesting result because uh, MSH3 is a mismatch repair protein. It's involved in DNA repair, and there are many. There were many studies, both in cell models and in mouse models of Huntington's disease, in the past, implicating MSH3 in the pathogenesis of Huntington's disease. And the data had shown that MSH3, or if you knock out MSH3, you slow disease progression in models of hunting, in mouse models of Huntington's disease, and that mechanism of how disease progression is slowed with knocking out MSH3 is because there is less somatic instability of the CAG repeat expansion. So a CAG repeat expansion in Huntington's disease is prone to somatic instability, and what that means is that it expands uh, during the lifetime of an individual. And uh, post-mortem studies have shown that somatic instability occurs in the brains of patients with Huntington's disease with expansion of the CAG, and that that's very closely correlated with the age of onset in post, from post-mortem data. Now, they were post-mortem studies, and then in mouse model studies, people, a number of groups had knocked out MSH3 and showed that it played a key role 
in somatic instability of the CAG repeat tract. It's like reverse translation. The novel findings that we found in people supported the many years of basic lab work in cells and mice. And for the first time, we showed that MSH3 was a highly significant modifier of disease progression in Huntington's disease. And the mechanism is likely to be through modulation of somatic instability of the CAG repeat tract. Perhaps we should just go back one step here and point out that many different biological mechanisms have been associated with Huntington's disease over the years, have been implicated by all sorts of cellular and mouse studies. But our genetic study in humans actually is, if you like, a natural experiment that shows that this pathway is likely to be important in people. So therefore, the past work looking at the effects of MSH3 on somatic instability becomes one of the primary mechanisms through which the CAG repeat might be exerting its toxic effects in people as against some of the many other pathways that have been identified, which makes it a really good um, potential drug target. So one of the things that I said earlier was that MSH3 is a member of the um, MUT-S-beta part of the mismatch and repair complex, and it detects um, mismatches of usually um, fairly small lengths in the DNA, so around 12 to 13 base pairs generally. And it nicks those out and repairs them. And the way it does this is by um, binding to another complex, which is called the MUT-S-alpha complex. And the MUT-S-alpha complex contains a protein called MLH1. And MLH1 is actually known to interact with the top protein which we have discovered in our previous genetic study that was published in 2015, which is a DNA nuclease called FAN1. So we thought that actually our finding in MSH3 um, was really interesting because it tied the mechanism together and said that FAN1 is likely to be operating through its effects on the CAG repeat rather than through its effect um, potentially on other systems and that indeed it might well potentially bind with MSH3 to exert that effect, effect on DNA. Um, one of the issues with FAN1 is that we know much less about it than we do with um, MSH3 and it would be very interesting to do some larger studies where we looked at progression in a larger number of people to see if we could um, deconvolute some of those signals a bit better. And so what are the next steps for you here? How do, how do we take this work forward after this? But my um, interest is, is developing and testing therapies for Huntington's disease. And I think the reason that we've been excited about this is that we know that the somatic expansion of the CAG repeat through alterations in MSH3 looks to be a important mechanism affecting disease progression. And we're following up on that in functional experiments and in a number of different Huntington's disease models and in also stem cell lines from patients. But I think this data provides additional support that it's important to target Huntington. And, the, and as Leslie mentioned, the CAG repeat and maintaining stability of the CAG repeat tract 
it becomes of critical importance. And I think MSH3 is interesting because if you lose or there's variation in a number of other DNA repair proteins, and like Leslie mentioned, FAN1, they can be associated with malignancies or with other deleterious problems. And so they're not regarded as ideal drug targets. But MSH3 is not essential because it can tolerate a loss of function variation. And so it provides a therapeutic target uh, for Huntington's disease because we can try and target MSH3 and see if we can somehow slow somatic instability. This is going to require a lot of lab work and cell work to follow up on and also drug development, but it's an ongoing and, and active piece of re research that we're undertaking. And I think this is also important because there are a number of diseases caused by triplet repeats. There are many polyglutamine disorders caused by CAG repeat expansions, and there are non-CAG repeat expansion triplet repeat diseases like myotonic dystrophy, for example. And so mechanisms that we've discovered here are likely to be important in these other diseases. And indeed, MSH3 has also been found to be a modifier of myotonic dystrophy, and it may be with similar mechanisms. Yes, as myotonic dystrophy, of course, is also caused by a, well, a, a CTG repeat, but CAG on the other strand. Um, and I guess that, you know, from a simplistic point of view, what we're really interested in here is the fact that the genetics give us a handle on mechanism. Having a handle on the mechanism allows you to dissect the mechanism and to generate uh, novel assays or to use the appropriate assays that have already been developed in other areas of biology. And that allows you to test potential therapeutics. So I think that uh, for all of those reasons, this is a very interesting finding. And um, to go back to the point I made earlier, it's as if nature's done a natural experiment and we want to replicate that experiment in an artificial way by finding molecules that can repeat it in people because if you can slow the progression of disease and remember that many of the people in Sarah's study did not have onset of disease, so if you can slow the progression before or while people have the early stages of disease, then actually you could give them a substantial period potentially of higher quality of life and I think that's um, a very important thing to note. Well, it's some very exciting work and uh, you can read their new paper now online at the Lancet Neurology. Leslie and Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Gavin. Thank you very much, Gavin.